Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney Plus and Hamilton. Experience the groundbreaking musical sensation like never before for your consideration in all categories. The original Broadway production of Hamilton is now streaming exclusively on Disney Plus. In the wake of the Academy Awards being Oscar so white, this year there's a rich abundance of films about and celebrating diversity. Count Shaka King's Warner Brothers movie Judas and the Black Messiah in the mix. He's here with us today on Crew Call, along with his DP, Sean Bobbitt, to tell us about the betrayal of Black Panther Illinois boss Fred Hampton by FBI informant William Neal. Shaka, tell me how um, all of this came together. I'm gonna try to give you the condensed answer because it's a bit it's a bit of a long story. Um, I uh, am friends with the Lucas brothers, and they had an idea to uh, make a movie about Waymo Hampton that they envisioned as a sort of uh, departed inside the world of Cohen Telfro. COINTELPRO being the FBI's counterintelligence program that, uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover created to crush uh, any voices of dissent, any voices he deemed voices of dissent. Um, and so they'd taken that pitch uh, around Hollywood. I can't remember what year, but no one was interested. Uh, and then a year later, uh, they approached me uh, with an interest in having me co-write it with them and direct it. And I saw the movie immediately. And so uh, we started to develop uh, the script. They had about a two page outline um, and I beefed it up to maybe, I can't remember what, like anywhere between like five, 10 pages, something there. And uh, I was about to start writing the screenplay when um, Jermaine Fowler, myself and the Luke's brother's friend who plays Mark Clark in the film, reached out to me and said, um, he had a friend named Will Burson who was writing a, Fred, a traditional Fred Hampton biopic and asked if I was interested in reading it. He'd actually, the, the script already existed. So I read that script and there was a lot in it that I liked and I knew that, you know, I'm a writer director. It takes me about a year to write a script and I know a professional writer takes two months and I really wanted to accelerate the process of, you know, bringing this thing to life. So Will and I connected, um, and we really just kind of had a simpatico in terms of, you know, a really great working relationship. Like it was pretty instant that we kind of understood that, you know, we 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 had something to do together that we thought could work. And so um, we teamed up, wrote a screenplay, or we're in the midst of writing the screenplay when I was hanging out with Ryan Coogler uh, and told him about the project that I was working on. I could tell he and his wife, Zinzi, were both interested. You know, his, his wife and producing partner, Zinzi, were both interested. And so um, I, once we finished, reached back out to Ryan and he got attached as a producer and brought on Charles King uh, to produce with us as well uh, and also co-financed the film. And so we went through probably another year-long development process with Charles and Ryan and their companies, Macro and Proximity. 
and developing the script. Um, and then eventually took it around to the studios. Um, within that time frame, we also attached Daniel as Fred Hampton, Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, attached the Keith Stanfield as William O'Neill, attached uh, Dominique Fishback as Deborah Johnson. Um, and we went to uh, the studios and Warner Brothers was the studio that um, was, was the only studio that was really interested in helping us make this film at the budget level that, you know, was, was required. Um, and then we spent some more time developing with Warner Brothers. That was probably another, I want to say almost a year. Um, and then eventually we ended up, you know, attaching folks like Sean Bobbitt here. Uh, and we went to Cleveland and we shot it. When, when did you shoot the film? October through December of 2019. Ah, few. <laughs> few in the sense <laughs> yeah. of... Yeah, seriously. But most of your post, I would imagine, has been all of last year during the pandemic. Yeah, we started post in January. We were fortunate, myself and my editor, Kristen Sprague, we were fortunate to uh, have a cut by the time shutdown happened in New York. Um, and then we went on hiatus for a bit. We started working remotely once Company 3, uh, where we were editing, was able to get us set up. And, you know, once the, once, you know, what, I can't remember if it was phase two or three, um, that we were allowed back in the, the same space together, we, we reconvened a few months later. I, I believe, I want to say, um, I, I really don't remember when. I've, I've, honestly, I've, like, I'm sure you know, time doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so, so uh, but we, at some point we got back in the room together and uh, we're able to start working together again in person. Did you meet with um, Hampton's wife and, and his son? In, Absolutely. In... We met, actually, so, like I said, it's a long story, and I, I, missed, I skipped a lot of parts, but um, we, before, I'd say, like, probably midway through our development process with Macro and Proximity, uh, we felt like the script was in a good enough place to show it to Fred Hampton Jr. and Akua Najeri. Uh, so we actually had been in contact with them for about a year, a year and a half, uh, just like flying out to Chicago, meeting with them, showing them different versions of the script, getting feedback. They, they weren't officially attached until uh, actually our, our second week of shooting. Uh, that was when they officially came on board as cultural consultants. But prior to that point, we were just having a lot of conversations and dialogue. They were really feeling us out as filmmakers and as people, getting a sense of our politics, doing background check on us, because, you know, you know, as, as you can imagine, after having watched the film, um, they're uh, very careful with who they interact with and let, and let get close to them for a good reason. So they had to feel us out and that, that took a while, but eventually they came on board uh, and Fred Hampton Jr. was actually on set, I want to say 90% of the time that we were filming. The um, the most jarring punctuation, uh, and I'll put a spoiler on this, is in your placard at the end about what happens to Bill. Uh, so soon after that interview he gave to PBS. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, for those that don't know, um, how, how did you do research, as, aside from looking at his interviews, um, how did you get into his his side of the world? 
there were a few books. There's not a lot written about him. A lot of it was uh, extrapolating and, and sort of trying to put myself in that position. Uh, and, you know, what you end up with is, you know, it's a, it's a dramatization. I couldn't tell you what Wayne Monell was really thinking. But, you know, the keys were the interview with Eyes on the Prize. You know, we didn't have the full video interview initially. We just had a transcript of the full interview, but that was incredibly useful. Um, there was a book called The Badge They're Trying to Bury, very rare book written by a, a, a cop who uh, claims that William O'Neill blackmailed him for murder. Um, and he talks about William O'Neill and Roy Mitchell and their relationship because he claims to have been pretty privy to, you know, a lot of the things they were doing. There was a book um, written by an independent commission that looked into uh, the assassination um, and that book contains some information about William O'Neill at the trial that we found useful. Uh, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune uh, from the time after he committed suicide. Um, there was the assassination of Fred Hampton. They made mention of William O'Neill uh, significantly. And I feel like there's another book that I, I'm not recalling that also had gave us some clues, uh, but so much of it was just, you know, um, putting yourself in his headspace as much as possible. Tell me about teaming up with Sean as your DP. I mean, Sean, it's electric and you've, you've worked on electric movies like widows and 12 years a slave. It's got such a great pace to it. Um, I mean, like right out of the bat, tell me about working with Sean, but right out of the bat, what I love is that there is a lot of where the camera is behind, notably behind um, Bill. Uh, mo you know, uh, that's how we establish it. And then there are other moments. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's just like we're following him in and around. Tell me about that. Yeah. It's funny because I'm looking at Sean. I'm looking at Sean and I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, so many... Like with, with Sean and I, it was a very just like organic, intuitive process. You know, um, we had 500 photographs we were given by a friend of mine, Akeem McKenzie, production designer of Chicago uh, from like 1967 to 1973. And, you know, once we got those, we, we looked at them and we were like, well, this is the movie, you know. So uh, it was that was a kind of Bible for us. But then it was really just a matter of us breaking down the script um, and really not, you know, like it wasn't like we had any kind of hard and fast rules. You know, we really looked, we got very specific and went sort of scene by scene um, and just thought about how the visuals could serve the narrative and the dramatic tension in each scene. Uh, and that was how we determined what we were going to do. I mean, we watched movies together prior and we did, did you know, a number of things in prep um to kind of create given circumstances but um you know even the idea like i know specifically you know that that we introduced bill intentionally we, we we were hiding his face until he gets the hat knocked off his head and because we wanted you to align we wanted to align you <clears throat> with the guys i mean ideally the goal was to you know trick you into thinking that he's already working for the fbi when you meet him because, you know, the, the irony in finding out this, here's this guy who got in trouble with the FBI for impersonating an FBI agent, right? 
And so, you know, our thinking was, well, people are going to go and come into this movie knowing that this is about a movie about a guy who, you know, is an FBI informant. So if we start the movie with him dressed like how you think an FBI agent would dress, you know, presenting himself as an FBI agent, it'd be really cool if we fool the viewer into thinking he's an FBI agent as up until the moment where the guys he's trying to shake down realize he's not an FBI agent. So that was the reason why the camera, why we hit him the way we hit him. Um, you know, and there are other times, but it wasn't like we were like, okay, the camera's going to always be behind. It wasn't, right. that was, it wasn't, you know, and what it was like to work with him? I mean, he, it was the best. It was the best experience of my life. You know what I mean? Like, the, it was it was so fun, you know, um, and fulfilling and and enriching. John, tell us more about um, building building this world. Um, were there certain cinematic inspirations? And there's there's some really rich. Um, you know, it. I mean, it feels like the. It feels like the. You know, the late '60s, uh, early '70s, and it's in in the greens, and in in the, in the tans, and 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 everything, and it's it's just really, in the red, and it's a very beautiful tone. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, uh, so much of that is production design, as well, and the the, you know, Shaka's photographs were really the key. And it was the, you know, the, the colors that come out in the ectochrome and kodachrome from that period were the colors that really echoed. Um, and, you know, were the colors that, that Sam Lysenko, the designer, picked up on as well. And it, it was very organic. You know, like, like Shaka says, there, there was nothing hard and fast. I mean, uh, there, were, there were lots of ideas. For example, the you know the the camera behind uh, O'Neill, um, we never wanted to show the audience what was going to happen before the actors or or the the characters knew. So it was always being in their space. It and was very suspenseful. Very it, well, it Yeah, and it but it's it, you know it is a, a, a powerful technique, but one that also I think um, you know holds an audience because they, they don't know what's going to happen any more than the, um, than the characters do. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just um, a, a, a useful technique um, in terms of storytelling. But the overall look, you know, was something that was, you know, decided upon over a lot of discussion and through a lot of guidance from Shaka. He really, the thing that impressed me about Shaka when I first met him was that he knew the story. And he knew the characters, and he also knew what that world was and how he wished it would look. And so, you know, given that guidance, it, it's very easy to then, you know, create that world. And all the departments were being, you know, inspired by Shaka's ideas, and we're all collaborating very closely to create this this absolute continuity, visual continuity of, of Chicago in the 1960s. So it's a piggyback off of that. Like, for example, the, you mentioned the green, right? We, yeah. we call it, we, we started to call it Panther Green at a certain point because we found the first, the first location we found like that, Sam 
and Bill Garvey, uh, our locations manager, uh, they found Panther headquarters. I remember Sam calling me to just like, this is to be like convinced. And he was right. I mean, we walked in and we knew we saw that green and we just all said, okay, this color, this color, this tone here is there's just something here that we have to, you know, we have to, we have to employ this. Like that, that a lot of that stuff, Cleveland was very good to us in the sense of we found so many locations that gave us almost a like nice primer for the colors that we were going to use that that headquarters being one the people's church scene that green came back and we we're just like that green again it's here when we were looking for locations for that speaker said oh of course this it has to be this place and so you find those pieces you have the actors in their skin tones those rich all just the wide range of browns so you have that against that and then you have you know Charlize bringing her Charlize Antoinette Jones, our, our, our uh, costume designer, bringing, you know, these clothes that just highlight, you know, and, and really um, balance uh, those browns and these greens that were playing. So it was just like, in a lot of ways, building the plane while flying the plane, you know, um, and just really being being fortunate with a lot of the gifts we were given, but also being you know, aware that these are not gifts to reject. Yeah. I was going to ask the symbolism of the green, but it, it, it all comes back. It all comes back to the Black Panthers color. Well, it wasn't so much like the Black Panthers color is actually like light blue, mm -hmm. but the green just, we called it Panther green because it was just like, it was just showing up in these locations that were important to the Panther storyline, you know? Like headquarters and the peak, like those are two, that's basically, besides the apartment, that's their space in a lot of ways, you know, that's their home. Um, and so for both of those locations to just have that color, you know, it's not like we, we didn't do any painting of those, you know, besides the set, you know, of the, of the apartment, there was nothing else really painted. A lot of that stuff came perfectly distressed. And then it was adding, building, building, you know, building a world within these spaces that were already had this like this amazing texture um, that felt like you know trapped in the time warp. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney Plus and Hamilton. Experience the groundbreaking musical sensation like never before for your consideration in all categories. The original Broadway production of Hamilton is now streaming exclusively on Disney Plus. Tell me about that center shootout between the, where, where the cops instigate the Panthers and Judy is arrested. Um, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's very riveting. Did you guys, did you guys storyboard that? What was the feeling that you wanted to get and how did you want to distinguish it from other types of movies? you know, similar shootouts and other types of movies? Well, I, I think that there were not many, um, many scenes that we did storyboard, um, but that was definitely one of them. As is always the case when you're doing an action sequence and there are going to be stunts and firearms, you know, you need to know exactly what you're doing. Plus, we had a very limited amount of time on the location the road where the, the where it all takes place is a major thoroughfare in Cleveland, 
and they were very loath to close the town for you know for extended periods of time. So we had to have it very very tightly choreographed so that we could get all of those different beats, you know, on on basically one day. Um, so you know that that kind of compressed everything for us. But I think a, what what makes that shootout great for me is the editing. Because it, it is it has been so compressed, and just the the pace of it is is just fantastic. It just draws you in, it holds you in. It's not too long. Um, the emotion of it is 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 just sort of rides throughout the whole scene, and you know I I, I think it, it it because of its compression it makes it much more powerful. I think it's the editing and it's also the music. That music is so, so, so clutch there. And um, the thing that's crazy about it is that that the, the spine of that you know, composition actually was done by uh, my friend Quelle Chris uh, and Chris Keys, who, you know, initially they contributed additional music to the film. And that was the first piece of additional music that they contributed. Um, because, and it was just, he was, he was someone, I knew I wanted him to contribute additional music. But we were one, and so I was bringing him into early edit sessions. I mean, we didn't even have an assembly. He was just like in the space. And he was one of the first people to watch our first assembly. And he was, I remember him watching it silent, the whole movie and saying, I don't really know, I don't really think there should be a lot of music in this. He's like, but I think I could hear something in this one scene here. And it was that uh, shootout scene. And he put in that, just the percussive part of that, which is, you know, it, it's, really intense sounding it just gives the scene a pace that i don't think any other scene in the film really has um and later you know once we had that and later mark isham and craig harris added additional sounds to that but funnily enough it was after creating that that percussive track we decided that any time there was, you know, not most times, not any time, but a lot of times when there was, was an action sequence, we'd bring back that element of the of, of the score because it really doesn't, that wasn't our vision for the score at all, really having a lot of those like hand claps and, and sort of these like weird click sounds. And so you hear it now at other parts of the film and I think it, it gives some of those scenes, you know, a, a propulsiveness um, that, you know, I think helps the editing a lot. Let's talk about that finale, another intense shootout. What was key in distinguishing, I mean, it's the tragedy. What was the key in distinguishing it from, from, the, from, the, from the middle sequence as far as how, how, the, how the cops entered? There's, there's an over, there's a bird's eye view going in between the two rooms which um, only heightens, heightens the intensity. Talk about that, how you guys came to, to staging that. Well, I think um, the, the key part to that scene is the veracity of it. We tried to be as accurate to the reports, um, particularly in, in, the, um, in the trials of the minute by minute, what actually happened. Um, and it was very important, I think, to, to get that as accurately as we could. And it, again, you know, we did storyboard it because it, it was crucial 
there are beats there that are historical and to get them right was very important. And again, it was a very short period of time. The whole assault on, on, on the building and the assassination, you know, was, was a couple of minutes. So it's trying to, to be true as well to the time, true to the injuries of, of, uh, of the victims and, and true to the horror of, of, of what happened. And I think also being true to like the, the emotion of being woken in bed by bullets. That was so important that like, you have to remember these people are asleep and it's not like the police kicked open the door, you know? And, 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 and then there was a, it's like no warning. It just was on suddenly, um, you know? And, and in terms of like the overhead shot, for example, that was so that you could recognize that they were shooting through the, the living room wall to shoot into the bedroom and then also shooting through the kitchen to shoot into the bedroom so that you could see that they were shooting from two different directions um, just to show you the intention. So much of it was showing you the intention of the state, you know, even shooting through the door. Because if you, know, if you look at the court testimonies, there's some people who say that they sh that the first shot fired from the police, they shot through the door. And some people say that they kicked open the door and then shot. But my thinking was, well, if they kick open the door and then shoot, and you see Mark Clark holding a gun, then you can say, oh, well, they were just, you can argue, oh, they were justified in shooting. So the fact that someone, because, you know, the cops kicked open the door, they got nervous, they saw someone with a gun, they, they gunfire. I wanted to be very clear that there was no, there was no, concern on their part that these people were armed. They knew they were unarmed and it was a total sneak attack. Um, so a lot of those decisions, you know, it was just around not just authenticity, but also trying, and, and I think throughout the film, just trying to really put the viewer in, in the room. It was, it was important, especially for that scene, that you feel like you're inside that room with them as much as possible. And also, No Country for Old Men came in. It came into play with that scene too. I remember because we watched we watched that we watched that during prep, and I remember us seeing the scene where uh, uh, Josh Brolin is in bed, and uh, Javier Bardem sneaking up. He's you know killed the guy at the front desk, and he's sneaking up the stairs, and he turns off the light in the hallway, and Josh Brolin observes his feet uh, under the door, and we're like, oh, we're gonna steal that, you know. And, and we did. Uh, now, the, the jarring shot, the camera is on Deborah's face. And kind of, in a Greek tragic moment, we kind of see he's not completely killed off screen, but he's, kill, he's, he's, he's murdered in a, in, in, a blurry, in a blurry shot behind her. Talk about that. Um, yeah. and, and, talk, and, and if you could, if you could add in... Deborah's thoughts on 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 that night. Sure, sure. I mean, the the first primary reason for me doing that was I was hyper aware that the most of the people who the people who care the most about this story are the people who are familiar with, familiar with it, and to you know for them Fred Hampton's a hero, and they've been wanting a movie made about him for decades, right? So, and I also recognize that most of those people are black. 
And in, and in doing so, and, and so I recognize that. And so then I think about, okay, a lot of black folks are just, they have a real difficult time watching people who look like us murdered on TV. We've gotten very accustomed to seeing that daily by the state. And it's something, and so I recognize that I don't want to put my view, this is going to be a hard enough movie to watch. And that's going to be a hard enough sequence to get through. I don't want to put, you know, my black audience in a position where they like have to watch Fred Hampton get shot in the head and see his brains blowing all over the place. That doesn't seem necessary. Um, and it doesn't seem really fair to them. Um, and so it was like, okay, how do I show the horror of this act uh, without showing the gruesome violence? Well, she's like her reaction. She's us in that moment, you know? Um, and she's also an amazing actress, Dominique Fishback. So I knew uh, that I could just put the camera on her face and she would, she would, you know, convey every emotion. And Deborah, the, the real life, Akua Nigeria, the real life Deborah Johnson, she was insistent that Dominique not cry because she was like, I did not cry when, you know, they shot Chairman Fred and, and, and that actually I refused to cry in their presence, refused. Wow. And so, and so that was the reason why she has the reaction she has. But it, what's cool about it, you know, from just a narrative point is you've seen th that character emote so often. She's cried a number of times in the film. She cries in the people's church scene, a single tear. She cries during the scene, you know, when she's reading the poem to, to Fred. And it's really a movie in some ways. Her or her journey is, is, is one where, you know, I mean, she starts out, he's like, you're not a poet. Essentially, he's like, you're not a poet. You're not a revolutionary. You're a poet, right? So he starts out this poet becomes a revolutionary is kind of navigating like what does this mean to be a revolutionary uh and then by the end is <clears throat> a soldier you know pregnant nine months pregnant hopped on top of you know her you know soon to be husband and protected him tried to protect him from gunfire that's not a normal reaction i mean i've heard that motorcycle backfired and i hit the floor in the middle of the night let alone you know, get on top of somebody, or like she didn't even pull him to the floor. She shielded him. So that gives you a window into where she was at, uh, just psychologically in that moment. So, it, it, it the, the reaction from Dominique in that moment also, I think, gives just a little bit of an arc to her, you know, because she goes from being this like really emotional, tender child to like, you know, a, a full-on soldier by the end. For both of you, what was the most challenging part of the shoot? Um, I'll let you go first, Shaka, while I try and think of something. Okay. Um, for me, the, the most difficult part of the shoot was probably synthesizing, you know, a number of visions into one singular vision, you know, because I had, you know, the movie I wanted to make you know, the, the producers had things that were important to them to see, studio had things that were important to them to see, the family had things that were important to them to see. And those, all those didn't always align. And so it's finding those points of interest. And a lot of times, you know, you would have to find those points of interest, you know, with seconds left in the fourth quarter, you know, like 
okay, we're setting up for a shot, but you know, Ch Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. has a has a real issue with this thing that we're about to do. How do we, you know, adjust and accommodate him without affecting what we've shot prior and the continuity that we've established, or affecting what we're going to be shooting later? Um, and so things like that would crop up all the time. And you know, a lot of times we couldn't. Sometimes we couldn't accommodate him. But you know, there was always an effort made to. And a lot of times we did. And a lot of times it made the scene a million times better in hindsight. So that was probably the most difficult part for me. Yeah, it's you know, every film has a unique challenge. Um, just by its very nature, they are all unique. I think the, 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 the amazing thing about this film for me, from a cinematography point of view, and also just a personal point of view, because there was such a strong camaraderie amongst the crew. And, uh, you know, there were people from all over America who'd been pulled together because they wanted to make the film. Um, there was a level of commitment where you know, people just simply wouldn't let things get them down or get in their way. We just got on with it. Um, and, you know, Shaka's leadership really set the pace. Um, you know, his commitment, his, his, his passion and his humor were, were something that, you know, it was always there every day, all day. And his remarkable diplomacy, um, which he's being very modest about right now, um, meant that, that on the set, there was always, you know, people were happy. People were, were happy to be making this film. And when, you, when you're on a set full of committed, happy people, you know, all those challenges and difficulties just go away. And, and that's the way, looking back, of course, this may be rose-tinted, but uh, that's the way I look back on the making of this film. Shaka, uh, in closing, after the summer we've had, and in the wake of what our nation has gone through, how does it feel to release this movie now? Hmm, how does it feel? Um, I mean, you know, there have been throughout this process a number of, you know, things that have occurred, you know, in my life and the lives of my collaborators outside of, you know, um, pandemic and, you know, George Floyd rebellion and all that yielded after, um, that have let me know that there's a reason why all of these people came together. It's like, I don't think people, I know people don't understand how impossible it was to make this movie in the sense of making, you know, like, it's a studio movie about a black socialist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, that's crazy. And like, it's not watered down at all to the point where his family, which would not allow a watered down version of this film to get made, is is on board, you know? Um, so that's like a real small hole to, to try to fit something through. Uh, but it happened because it was supposed to. Like, it, I really do believe that this film was made because it was supposed to, and I think it was made when it was supposed to. And so when I look at when it's coming out, I'm like, oh, well, that's why it was made. It's clearly supposed to exist now. You know, 
people have been trying to make a Fred Hampton movie for a long time. Um, great filmmakers, Forrest Whitaker, Antoine Fuqua, you know, powerful, incredible filmmakers. And for whatever reason, it, what, it, it, you know, it just wasn't the timing. Things didn't all fall into place the way that they needed to. And, and in this instance, they did. And I, I, when I look at, you know, when it's releasing, I'm like, well, that's clearly what it was, it was meant to, it was meant to be, you know. Filmmaker Shaka King and director of photography, Sean Bobbitt. Judas and the Black Messiah, making its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. Thank you both. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you. Nice talking to you, Sean. Great Thank to see you, Shaka. Thank you so much. See you Take Thank care. you. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. And our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.